You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. He's supposed to be Turkish. Some say his father was German. Nobody ever believed he was real. Nobody ever knew him or saw anybody that ever worked directly for him. But to hear Kobayashi tell it, anybody could have worked for Soze. You never knew. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Space, time, mind, mind, 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 space, time, mind, should somehow, somehow do a Jedi mind meld. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Space Time Mind. I'm Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. And with me, as always, is a man who says of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not. Richard Brown. Oh, no, Richard. Richard Whoa, we're getting some. Uh, is, uh, is fading. I see your signal fading. Are you sure the virus is in your body and not in your computer? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one. <laughs> so we have a, an extra special guest today. We have someone from television. Hi. Eric Kaplan, writer for Futurama and yeah. The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I'm actually in my office at The Big Bang Theory in Burbank, California right now. Uh, oh, thank you for having me on the Time, Space, Mind podcast we're super pleased cool. to have you. And uh, you're also author of a recent book called Does Santa Exist? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I hope it would be entertaining and informative to your viewers. Yeah, <laughs> and how many copies should each uh, each listener buy? I think one is okay. Okay. <laughs> so I, I bought one. Too, you can have one to mark up and one to keep pristine, but that's based on your other other items in your budget, really. <laughs> So this is a choose-your-own-adventure book, I heard. Is that, is that right? No. Who told you that? <laughs> I think you did in a video I saw. Oh, yes. the video is a choose-your-own-adventure video, but the book is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. The book, you read a, a sentence, and then your only choice is to stop reading or to read the next <laughs> sentence. So you have choice, but it's not, you don't really have it. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure. Oh, so it was just the video that was choose-your-own-adventure. choose-your-own-adventure. That's right. I think you have more choices. Like, I chose to not read any footnotes. You chose not to read the footnotes. I guess that's true. I mean, you you, I, 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 you have a lot of choices. You could, you you left out a good, you missed a good footnote, though. That's most of my self-disclosure is in one of the footnotes. Oh, but no. you could, you, you could make a soup out of it, but those are choices <laughs> that are not really dictated by the book, by that particular book. Like, that's true of any book. I thought I, I thought I saw a disclaimer about making a soup out of it. No, no, it's not special to my book that you can make a soup out of it. That's true of any book. So I wouldn't say, oh, it's a special book, you can make a soup out of it. That's true of any book. So you're not, I would say, and I, I hate to be um, critical, you're not really engaging with the book's contents if you take certain stances vis-a-vis -vis the book. 
like tearing it to pieces or making a soup out of it or or using it to make your table even, which you can do an <laughs> adventure with the book, but you're not, in my mind, engaging with the content of the book in certain choices. I don't know. That might be contentious. So uh, anyway, the if if uh, anyone hasn't done it yet, they should check out your YouTube Choose Your Own Adventure thing, and we'll when when the po podcast comes out, there will be some links, and we'll have a link to the to the beginning right. of the Choose Your Own Adventure. Right. the 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 video is about a Choose Your Own Adventure where you get it. Do you believe in Santa, and why, or why not? And if you don't what's your approach to that, and if you do, what's your approach to that? So that is a Choose Your Own Adventure. And I, I went back and I chose many adventures. Oh, did you find it fun? Yeah, totally fun. I And I found I found out that uh, actually believing in Santa Claus is more fun. That's true. <laughs> I started off not believing in Santa Claus, and, <laughs> and I, I did enjoy that, but then I was curious what I might be missing out. And right. I want to say the people that, that choose the path of believing in Santa, they have a better YouTube experience. I don't know right. about life in general, but... I don't know about life in general either, but it's it's always sort of seemed to me like an interesting puzzle that there are some people who say the world is completely meaningless and life is completely meaningless and it makes me really unhappy to feel that, but I want to feel that. And I don't, I don't understand how you could possibly... That seems to me an inconsistent position. That if somebody said, the world is completely meaningless, and then I came along and said, you can take this pill, and you'll believe in God or Santa, and you will never be disabused of your belief until you die, that you should. I don't, I don't see the, the rationality of the other position. Does anyone say they see the rationality in it? Oh, I've heard some people say, well, you know, it's, it's a, I, I want to believe the truth, even if it makes me unhappy. I don't know who says that particular in particular because it's been a long time since I've I've been an academic and had to cite my sources. But I'm pretty sure somebody has said that they all <laughs> well, want to the truth even if it makes them unhappy. Hasn't haven't they? Maybe uh, I'm probably. You if nobody probably. says that, then it's a straw man. That's a, a vice of mine, I guess, knocking down straw men. Well, I'll say it. Yeah, Richard. That sounds like something Richard would. Oh, Richard says it. Okay. Well, how come? <laughs> uh, how come? Uh, well, there's something. Why? Well, if one has a belief-forming mechanism in a world like ours, uh, aiming at truth is conducive to survival. Um, oh, you want to survive? Okay, that's fine. If you think you prefer to, it'll help you survive, then then that's different. I'm talking about the person who says it's true. It'll make me unhappy. It won't help me survive, but I still want to believe it just because it's true. Well, overall, I would suggest that you want to believe it because it's true, and even in certain cases where believing it may make you unhappy, the overall net benefit, uh, you know, kind of overrides that. So even right. though it might cause some discomfort like in this, utilitarian or something like, like a that. real utilitarian or something about but truth. But if we guaranteed yeah. your survival, Richard, and we just gave you the choice of the, the happy, and there's going to be a loss of truth with the happy, Yeah. are you going to choose the sad? Uh, I would. I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm too much of a Macedonian in this sense. I really believe that uh, we desire to know the truth, and there's something important about knowing the truth, and that's more important than being happy. Macedonians believe that? <laughs> Aristotle in particular. <laughs> oh, Aristotle, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll, we desire to know the truth, and so there's not, not only conducive to 
survival, although that's probably where it began with us uh, evolutionarily wise, obviously, but it's not only conducive to survival, but there's just something worthwhile about knowing the truth. What? Uh, being not well, being deluded is a is a, a deficit, I guess I'd say. It's a, well, a defect. Well, why is it? Well, who cares? I mean, <laughs> like if if I say like like take take something where where we'll never know, right? Yeah. Like um, whether like the virtuous person gets to exist in the afterlife. I mean, it's probably not true. But it could be. Right. And if I say I'm going to be a, a more well-behaved, happier person by believing that, well, who cares? Like, does Aristotle say I shouldn't do that? Uh, well, I don't know if Aristotle says that. Does I guess. That? Yeah, it's interesting. So I maybe what's really going on a lot here is some kind of um, yeah. If you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, is it still good to have done it? Is that the kind of question that we're asking here? So if you have totally delusional reasons for for performing an action, the action turns out to be the right one. No, um, I'm not talking about that. That's a that's a different puzzle. I'm just saying, like, if if I want to believe, if I think I'll be happier if I believe that I will go to the Buddha's paradise after death, and and no one knows if it's true, and it's probably not true. What's wrong with believing it? Uh well, maybe your brain—you just can't get your brain to simultaneously believe that it's probably not true and that it's true. Right. Maybe I can't do it. It might be impossible. Um, but some people say, like, oh, you know, they'll meditate or they'll kind of, you know, they. If you one thing I found is the case is if you hang out with other people who claim to believe these things, that almost by a kind of um, a contagion you'll find yourself believing them and saying them more. I found that to be the case, that when I, I hang out with certain religious people, I'll get more religious just from whatever a group think. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure, that stuff happens. That's how I, I, I became more sympathetic to experimental philosophy, is by not by any <laughs> argument, just by hanging out with a bunch of experimental <laughs> philosophers. For oh, are you sympathetic to them? I need to talk to you because I read them on the Internet, and I thought, what? What on earth are they talking about? But, I just uh, thought that was bananas. I want to go back. Okay. Anyway, I want to go back to the truth. <laughs> let me let me ask uh, a, a slightly different question. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't think I agree as much as as uh, Richard does. The truth is intrinsically valuable, but I do I do feel the pull in that direction. Yeah, yeah, me too. And so one, you know, one thing that I think about is like um, in certain lucid dreams. Where you where you achieve the first level of lucidity of simply being aware that it's a dream. A lot of times, that awareness makes the reality fade. Like the the awareness that, with a mere act of will, create a a beautiful woman or a beautiful man or a beautiful skateboard, whatever you're into. The fact that it that it's it's so within your control really like kind of sucks the reality out of it. And as the reality is leached out of it, then whatever was desirable seems leached out of it. So just deciding to believe in something kind of takes the, the fun of believing right out of it. That could be true. That could be true. I wonder if... Um, we want to feel like it's forced upon us. The, right. The There's a kind of uh, masochism. I'm not sure if it's masochism. Maybe, you know, reality is good. 
Well, why do we have to equate reality with that which forces itself upon us? It seems like a kind of rapey epistemology. <laughs> yeah, because we're empiricists. You know, Hume, it's, it's all about impressions, man. It impresses oh, on I mean, you. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe we're just wired that way. Maybe. That's... It could be different. You see, that's, that, it could be some people feel different ways, you know, you know, there's this William James thing about the tough-minded and the tender-minded, right? Yeah, yeah. And there might be just different temperaments which approach philosophy in different from different ways. I don't know. But I, I mean, usually, though, for me to understand a position, I have to have some mood or part of myself that that kind of grocks it. <laughs> you know, so oh, I, really? I kind of understand both impulses, both both desires. But like, you know, I could see. Uh... Eric, that that you have a ring on one of your hands, and I can imagine that um, next to the finger with that ring, there's all there's a, a second ring, and and you might ask, well, how is it that I'm able to tell? Because I, I do I do distinguish. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I do I do draw a distinction between the real ring and the imagined ring that's right next to it. And you could ask this question, well, how do you tell? Like, what criteria do we usually employ? to distinguish between, for example, the imaginary ring and the so-called real ring. Mm -hmm. And one criterion looks to be that with the imaginary ring, it's really easy for me to modify it in my imagination. But the, the real ring, if I want to modify it, I have to do some, I have to, I have to reach out and grab your ring and maybe paint it a different color or, or bend it with a pair of pliers or something. So the different, the different degrees of control seem like a a big difference between the imaginary thing and the and the real thing. Mm. So for a being who's more powerful, there are fewer things that are real. Yeah, I don't. You know, someone who had a godlike intellect. I'm not sure. Nothing how much would be they real for him. Distinguish between the the imaginary and the real. Huh. Well, that's, that's an interesting result. I mean, because I do think it's kind of interesting. Like, like take um, take a sexual fantasy, like. A sexual fantasy is not real, but you cannot just change any aspect of it because it won't work anymore. It won't continue to be erotic and arousing. Um, so, and yet it's it's a paradigmatic fantasy, and yet I cannot change it. And in fact, certain people they they would love to change it. You know, they're pedophiles or whatever, but they can't. Well, you uh, can't change it and make it uh, have the erotic effect, but you can change it. I don't know. I mean, I could, I could, I could be imagining a beautiful woman, and then I could imagine a skateboard. And when I imagine the skateboard, I, I, it will no longer arouse me. I guess that's true. <laughs> but I, but I could at, at any at any minute. I mean, I, I, some people have uh, what's the right word for it? Um, intrusive thoughts or in, there's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, like, I'll give you $10 if you don't think about pink elephants and, like, you cannot control thinking about Oh, pink damn it. Now I'm thinking about pink elephants. And there are some people that have these kinds of um, intrusive imagery, and, and I guess they still appreciate that it's imagery and not they're not perceiving a real thing. Right. It's a little strange also because it seems like on your account, like, like mud is less real than rock, right? Because it's more easy to change it. Well, I mean, there's a. I can change it, but only indirectly. I can directly change my my image, my mental image. Well, but that's, that's that that direct indirect distinction. I think is it's a little squishy, isn't it? Be as your example of intrusive thoughts shows, because 
the right. intrusive thoughts are not real, but it might be that the only way to stop them is to get psychotherapy or like if you get a tune, like a, a, what they call an ear maggot, you get a tune stuck in your head. Right. Maybe the only way to get rid of it is to sing another tune or something or go for a walk. So, you know, I, I mean, I called it a criterion, so it's not, maybe it's not sufficient. Right. And, and maybe... Yeah. It may be thinking of necessary and sufficient conditions is not the way to go, but there's like a Chinese menu, and as long as you get like eight between seven or eight out of the twenty things, you know, then it counts as real. And so one of one of the things would be would be control, but another thing is going to be like cohering with a, a general theory of the way things ought to be. That's going to be squishy too, but that seems to be part of what's going on when we draw these distinctions. So with the intrusive thought, I don't, so uh, control is not going to suffice to tell me whether it's real or not because uh, <laughs> I can't control that I'm thinking about pink elephants once again. But nonetheless, it, it doesn't cohere with my general theory of the way things should be uh, to think that there, w there actually is a pink elephant in the room right now. Right. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting, though, like, it's not true that my criterion of reality is that it cohere with everything you think is true, right? Because you could be a deluded person, yeah. and I could say, hey, all his ideas cohere together, but they're still wrong. Right. So, so turning that around on myself, I can then say, well, just because I, I could be in the same position as you are and not know it. <laughs> you know, I could have a lot of ideas that cohere together, and it could just be like a coherent delusion, you know? But I guess what I'm trying to talk about is the phenomenality, phenomenology of the the real versus imaginary distinction. You know, the big question of what's real. I want to postpone that because that's really hard. Well, I guess what I worry about with this thing is that let let's say we're let's say we're one of these scientists who's conf confronted with an anomaly. Right? We have a theory of reality that works perfectly. But then there's one thing out there that doesn't fit in. Yeah. The 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 imagined state of affairs where that thing does fit in coheres much better than the reality, <laughs> which is it doesn't fit in. Um. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, you're you, you're putting forward a pretty weak. Uh, I don't mean you're weak. I mean like a pretty <laughs> unambitious. Um. You're like, well, if it coheres, that's pretty good, and if it's, it imposes on us, it's pretty good, and those are all things that are pretty good, and reality kind of has something to do with some or more of those things going together, and who could argue with that? That seems eminently sensible. I'm not going to. <laughs> How did we get on reality? I thought we were talking about truth. Wait, what are the, what's the difference? Uh, well, you could have, there maybe one way things are true is that it, relates to reality somehow, but maybe there are other ways for things to be true. Hmm. Maybe some things are definitionally true, maybe some things um, uh, work slightly differently than that, but what, so why is, why is reality involved here? Why, why can't we, I thought we were talking about just whatever, whatever, whatever's truth is, is it more valuable to know the truth or not? And so uh, you you could just set reality aside. I mean, is is truth coherence with its eternal structure? Is it some kind of connection to real to some external reality? Does it track that? Those are interesting metaphysical questions. But I thought our question was about 
about the value of knowledge and whether or not it was better to know the truth and not know the truth. Yeah. What kind I, guess of I, I guess I was lighting them, and I, I'm not sure what I'm losing by doing this and saying, like, what is the value of knowing reality versus not knowing reality? And that's kind of similar to what is the value of having true beliefs versus not having true beliefs. But but if I'm missing something, right? So so I'm what? Kind of blurring those together because I don't see what relevant distinctions are getting lost. But maybe there are some. Whoa! You just hey wow! <laughs> that was a relevant distinction. You uh, uh well no I mean the the there's not a relevant distinction that's lost Eric that's not what I was trying to say I would just say uh um. Uh, thinking that the focus has shifted from talking about what the value of knowing reality is to what does it mean to be real or what what is reality. That's true. That's true. And what so that's that? what I was objecting. I was right. I, right. I was thinking, um, you know, why isn't this a good answer? So I said something about survival earlier, but I, we could also say something about reasoning. So we so one thing that we like about re rational processes is that they are truth-preserving maybe. So that if you start with something true and reason correctly, you should not end up with something false. And so if you're not tracking which things are true and which things are false, you may be led through an error of reasoning into a an error of reasoning of this sort, uh, which may have detrimental effects later, you know, for action planning or whatever. Right, so you know, that's fair. survival related. But By so the way, there's so there's it a always strikes me as weird I, and I, I I may be changing the subject here, but it always strikes me as weird that philosophers place an emphasis on individual survival when the philosopher who kind of started it all, Socrates, was willing to die. Yeah. So it seems like he didn't think individual survival was that important. So either he, <laughs> he actually did, though. He just thought that the individual was a non-physical self that survived the death of the body, so he wasn't too worried about that. <laughs> oh, is he, did he think that? Are you sure? Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. oh yes, 100%. Okay. Yeah, in fact, in their you know in the uh, discussion they have right before his execution, that whole discussion is centered on his arguments towards uh, well, a not escaping from prison, and b why he believes the soul is immortal. One of the interesting things now that you brought this up, one of the and non-physical. One of the interesting things about this that I've always uh, thought is interesting is that you sometimes get this sort of now totally switching the topic, but you sort of get the feeling from dualists, people who like dualism about the mind, that dualism's like always been a default view in philosophy. But what's interesting if you read the Platonic Dialogues is whenever Socrates is going around talking about the mind being non-physical, the people he interacts with are represented as being surprised, as saying, how do you know this? How can you believe that the mind is not just the body or something physical? So it, 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 uh, that seems to me to suggest that, at least in ancient Greece, at circa the 5th century BCE or something, the common sense view was that the mind was physical, some part of physical reality. Mm. And I mean, that's, you know, I'm not making a big deal of that, I'm just saying, Sometimes people that are interested in physicalism, like myself, um, I think it's good for us to point out that there's a long history of people saying that the mind is physical, as well as people saying the contrary. Well, can't can't you? Isn't it sufficient evidence that most people think the mind is physical that they try to avoid their body being killed? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think that's sufficient evidence. That I mean, mm. what? Well, uh, what that shows is that. People think that they're linked in some way, some sufficient way, um, but that doesn't, I don't think all by itself suggests that they think that. See, now you're already getting into XPI. I thought you didn't like experimental philosophy. You've already discovered a question to investigate. Oh, 
No, I, I guess I, I, I don't understand what it is, but it, it seemed to me, as I understood it, that they were saying something like, how can we determine if revenge is a worthwhile way of living? Well, let's see if people think it is. <laughs> it's like, well, that wasn't the question. If people think revenge is a worthwhile way of living, obviously they do. Just go outside. They're constantly driven by envy and anger and revenge. The question is, are they right? So right. I thought that was a bizarre move, but maybe I don't really know them very well. I just At some point I came across that phrase, and I looked it up on Wikipedia, and I read this stuff about, oh, well, we're going to do a survey and ask people if they think uh, revenge is worthwhile. And it's like every philosopher assumes that most people think revenge is a great way of living your life. They just think they're wrong. <laughs> I thought that was weird. Um, I don't know what study you're referring to, but not all XFi is like that. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of the whole discipline there, but uh, not all of it is like that. Some of it, I think, is is worthwhile. For me, it's especially the stuff that's interesting is, uh, you know, checking out what philosophers will toss off in a sentence now and again. You know, oh, common sense says, you know, uh, or here's a good example. You know, you read in a, a, a book on ethics, and suddenly the philosopher in whoever it is says, you know, m most ordinary people are naive realists about morality. So you say, okay, well, is that is that in fact, if you're going to appeal to that as evidence, you might wonder if that's true. Uh, in the philosophy of mind debate, uh, another example, Dan Dennett says a lot, um, oh, you know, the ordinary person on the street believes in secondary qualities, uh, you know, that colors exist in the mind, not out there in physical reality. Uh, and then he uses that as a plank in an argument. So you might wonder, well, do ordinary people actually think that? Okay, okay. Fair enough. I take it back. Well, um, well, yeah, I like that's not to say every project is, you know, characterizable in this way, but I think that stuff's useful at least. I, 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 I personally it. don't understand the the issue of whether colors are out there or not, and and I I think that if you asked me, you'd get a confused answer. And I spent many years studying philosophy, so I can't help but think that if you asked like my dad or my brother you'd get a confused answer too, and you would tend to kind of, if you think you understand what that distinction is, you'll tend to get a degree of clarity out of my answer and my brother's answer, which is misleading. But uh, Eric, do you, is there a problem with in there versus out there in general, or is it... I just don't know what color? it means. I, I just I, Explain it to me. I don't understand that it's... it's I mean, it seems to well, me... There's that, one way to characterize it when you... When you're looking at a table, it has color and a shape. When you turn the lights off, it seems safe to say it still has that same shape. But does it have the same color? I don't understand the question. I mean, it's like saying, if I'm looking at a table and and I drop it in a bucket of acid, does it still have the same shape? Potentially. Well, that, turning off a light in a room is not the same as dropping a into a bucket of acid. Why not? <laughs> well, uh I'm sorry. Well, because the physics of the two situation is very different. I mean, unless you. you well, know, physics. by the way, guys, in a certain interaction with my eye and with the light, and it has a certain shape and a certain interaction with the the heat in the room. You know, if it were a billion degrees in the room, it would have a different shape. I, I don't understand. I think all these things are relational, and the idea of knowing what it, what it would look like if no one, if I wasn't able to see it, or or would it still be? Would there still be nine planets if? If I wasn't around to count and there were no human beings who counted, I, I find all these questions very, very murky. Wait, I don't know what they mean. We, we need to pause for a break, but when we come back, I'll, I'll set you guys straight. I got it all figured out. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
Here's one way I think about the inside-outside distinction. It's a case where I think we can be pretty clear about what inside versus outside is supposed to mean. Take, for example, a kind of naturalistic story about where people came from and what, what the relative priority, temporal priority was of the existence of things like life and nervous systems and hydrogen. And on, on the, the usual story, hydrogen was around for a really long time before there was any life on the planet Earth and, and probably anywhere in the universe. And nervous systems came even after that. And so probably you need nervous systems to have thoughts about hydrogen. So hydrogen predates thinking about hydrogen and in that sense is outside. Where, you know, like with tables I, tables and, and human artifacts, it's kind of hard to maybe hard to draw that distinction a table well, hydrogen, is only a table. Hydrogen is it's a kind of element that has one proton, right? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think math predates people thinking about math? Of course. Okay. So Yeah, like the the difference between one proton and, and, and two protons comes before people thinking about that difference. Hmm. Yeah. So what kind of a fact is it? It's just there just are like set theory just exists as part of the universe and it just always has? I don't know about, about the theory existing, but the, the things that the theory talks about. Or maybe, you know, set theory is not the right perspective on it. It's myriology. But yeah, something that, that what we use set theory or, or myriology or arithmetic to describe is, is, is glomming on to stuff that was there already. For example, the difference between the nucleus of a hydrogen atom and the nucleus of a helium atom is, is the difference between one and two. So you said what we... You used a, a expression which I don't know if I understand. You said... Glom on. Glom on. <laughs> what we use to describe... So that there's something there which is described by the math, but it's not... It's not the... Yeah, I mean, there's a... The, whatever describing is, It's maybe it's... Um, it's words and sentences, or maybe it's this complicated thing that involves words and sentences and brains. Maybe it involves whole communities. But uh, describing whatever it is, it seems safe to say that describing happens in the universe after hydrogen happens in the universe. Hmm. I guess what puzzles me about that is I think like um, to count kind of requires some relevant distinction of what counts as one thing versus another thing. Like, you could decide to count protons, or you could decide to count 
I don't know, something else. You could decide to count the number of needles on a, on a fir tree or how many times a dog licks something. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and it seems to me, absent a consciousness for whom these things matter, I don't know what it means to say that there's one one proton or, or that that's sort of this, I mean, or that there's hydrogen. Like, there's so many different ways of describing and cutting things up. But what's the opposing story? Does it say something like there was this undifferentiated flux and then there was language and then there was hydrogen? Like, I don't know what the opposing story is. Because, yeah, I mean... Good question. I, I mean, I, I think Heraclitus, he sort of says, you know, everything flows and the mind flows and language flows and... I guess that's, that's something like the story, but it's not it's not it's not coherent because he doesn't think anything is coherent. So <laughs> so his yeah. story is not coherent either. I mean, he I, does think there's something that's coherent though. It's just he thinks it's hidden. The logos. Okay. So that's the opposing story, I guess. <laughs> Kantianism is always the opposing story. Exactly. There's a secret intrinsic nature to the universe that we don't get access to. Does it have hydrogen in it? No. Oh, we have man. access to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never understood Kant either. Like, I just, the more I learned stuff, the more I, I kind of felt that the things that I thought I understood, I didn't. Because <laughs> so, now I feel like this Kant story, and I used to like Kant. Um, I just am sort of like, as I understand it, he thought, like, we don't know anything about what really exists, but we know how our no. mind has to think about things. No, because the things that really exist are the tables and chairs. So, of course, we know about what really exists. I mean, well, what we don't know is about noumena, but we know about what really exists because exists is a, it describes a phenomenal world. But he so thought that, that somehow like, this story that he has about time, space, and causality being somehow created by the mind. How does he know that? Well, if you like, I mean, are we going to talk about Kant now? I guess the I way we're going to I'm just saying, backwards. I'm just putting that forward as an example of, of <laughs> the limited, limited uh, intelligence I have these days for dealing with philosophical positions. Because <laughs> I used to think that made sense, and now I think if it makes sense, I can't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what part don't you want? I mean, what's hard? To, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it, but what's not to understand? Well, here's one thing not to understand, that yeah. causality is somehow created. Like, what's the, what is that relationship <laughs> between the mind and causality if it's not a causal relationship, which it can't be because causality is the thing that's being explained? That's one thing not to understand. Well, it's a structural relationship. What does that mean? I, what's, it means what's, that certain experiences are ordered in a certain uh, sequence according to... But what, but what does it mean they're ordered? Like, even using that piece of language, like, I know what it means to order a bunch of eggs <laughs> by putting them in a box, but... I don't know what it means for a mind which doesn't exist in time or space or have any causal relationships to do something, including order things, including form experiences, including have experiences. It just it just seems to, to me sort of like nonsense. You're talking about, oh, so you're, you this is the old worry about the, how the noumenal realm does, creates, or does anything, because we have to describe it in terms of... How could of it create life. anything? Because creation is a, is, a, uh, is a causal relationship, so what's right. it talking? Well, those are metaphors. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think it's quite fair to trap Kant in this way, because it's too easy to do it to him. Because, of course, every time you talk about something that's noumenal on his view, you end up saying something which is a contradiction. He has a whole chapter on how that can't be avoided because our language is designed to talk about the, the phenomenal world, the world of experience, 
so when we try, whenever we try to use the concepts from experience to transcend experience, we end up with uh, contradictions and antinomies. So we well, have to just sort of we have to just let go and focus on what we can know, which is uh, experiential. What what experience? But I mean, it's a very long, complicated book. And if it's just a fancy way of saying, you know, it's all very confusing, and who knows, couldn't we save some time? <laughs> yes, we could save a lot of time, and we could also write the prolegomena, which is much shorter and contains all the key ideas. <laughs> so I want to try something, and let me see if this will work. Uh, I want to simultaneously stop talking about Kant and impossible address the question of how the mind could make stuff or construct. Oh, that's doubly things. impossible. So a little bit earlier we were we were talking about XFi and whether they're doing something. Mm -hmm. And one thing that appeals to me about XFi, at least as an object of contemplation, mm -hmm. is to think about what sorts of things it might actually make sense to try to settle by polling. Right. It's an interesting question. So one example that I like, and maybe this won't work for you guys, but think about a party and the question of whether the party is a fun party. Mm -hmm. It seems that there to me, that there couldn't be any... That cannot be settled by polling. I don't think that there's any fact about whether the party is fun or not that, that goes beyond what the, the people attending the party sincerely believe about it. So if everyone at the party or the majority of the party sincerely believe that it's a fun party, then blammo, that's a fun party. Even if all they're doing is sitting around playing Dungeons and Dragons or they're, all they're doing is sitting around watching football or, or, you know, all the different ways in which people claim to have fun parties. Regardless of what they're doing, if they all sincerely believe that they're at a fun party, that would... What does sincerely mean? Does that mean I can't brainwash them into thinking it's fun? You, I guess you could brainwash them into sincerely believing that it's fun. So the brainwashed people are having sincere... They're really having fun even though I've implanted... Sincerely is just a way of emphasizing that they really believe it and they're not just paying lip service to it. They're not just saying that they're having fun. See, I don't think they would really be having fun if I brainwashed them into thinking it. Huh. So what would we have to test for? How would we know whether they were really having fun? Uh, whether their belief that they were having fun was formed in some kind of uh, reliable fashion. But would it have to be caused by the presence of fun? Yeah. And, and is fun like hydrogen, the sort of thing that predates... <laughs> Yeah, it's like hydrogen, but it's social. It's socially made hydrogen. But isn't it made by people believing that it's there? Uh, believe uh, if there. I mean, there's a kind of weird reciprocal relationship between their believing and it being there. But it, but there are case, I believe there are cases where they could believe sincerely they're having fun and be totally wrong about that, and also probably like, cases example, where they don't believe they're having fun, but in fact they are. Aside from the, the mad scientist brainwashing thing, is there an example where... Well, here's an example. Supposing you're a party planner, and you're trying to throw a good party, and you, you hire these great clowns, and then, unbeknownst to you, everybody who shows up at the party has clown phobia, and they have a horrible time. And you're like, man, I don't know how to throw parties, and I'm your guru, I'm your, your boss in the clown, in, in the party planning company, and I say, don't beat yourself up, Pete. It was a good party. It was a fun party. But through your bad luck, you had clowns there, and it was full of clown phobics. But your party planning skills are top-notch, and just keep on doing what you're doing. You just had a bad night tonight. That's, that's a coherent story, isn't it? Well, I'm tempted to say no. I'm also tempted to say 
it is a coherent story, but we just are expanding the group of who gets to say whether it's fun. But it's not. We're just expanding the group that we have to poll, but we're not going well, beyond. I think polling. you you have a weird position. If you say I'm the best party planner on earth, and no one likes my parties, and they're all fools, <laughs> I find that I do agree. If if denying if 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 agreeing with you means uh, denying the validity of experimental philosophy, then I don't want to deny <laughs> the validity of experimental philosophy because your position seems quite weird. <laughs> Who's the you there, him or me? Pete. Pete's a, if, or it's not actually Pete's position, but anyone whose position, maybe it's you. It might be you that you say it makes sense to say someone is a fantastic guy who throws parties. His parties are really fun, but no human ever finds them fun. That seems to me a weird position. Yeah, I didn't say that. I said that you, you said, can find you cases. You think it's possible. Yeah, I think it's possible. So mine's an existence claim, not a uh, universally quantified claim that there could always be this. But I do think that, yeah, you could be having a lot of fun and not realize you're having fun. I believe that's true. Where um, the you is all of the human race minus this one crazy guy. Uh, well, the all of the human race... Um, so can we start with the individual case first? Why can't we just start with one person? Can one person believe sincerely that they are not having fun when really they are? I think that that yeah can make sense of that happening to one person. Yeah, I can. What, you can. what is that? What is that? What's going on there? <laughs> well, what's that? going on there maybe is that unconsciously they're have they're experiencing enjoyment, but for whatever reason they're conscious of it as annoyance or something like that. So that or they're or vice versa. Or vice versa. So that what, what does it mean that, that they're really experiencing enjoyment, but they don't think they are? What 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 does it mean? What well, it means, means is, oh, go ahead. What? for a different sort of example, uh, we've probably all had the experience of of having it pointed out to us, like you're you're in a conversation with your your spouse, and and uh, and they say, why why are you so angry? And you say, I'm not angry. And they say, yeah, actually, for the past the past minute and a half, it's been really obvious that you're very angry. And and uh, often you realize like oh yeah they're right you you have been angry they just noticed it before you did so it it, it seems that happens sometimes that yeah we might have an anger that we're not aware of the but just just for fun could we say <laughs> that like if you know if you're feeling good or bad and that if you're feeling bad the causal story that you're angry because you want to hurt someone else or you feel they've done you some injustice might be hidden from you, but whether or not you're enjoying yourself isn't isn't hidden from you. Like I don't know what it means to say that someone's enjoying himself, but he doesn't know it. I, well, we, oh, Pete just told you it means that you uh, are acting in a certain way, but uh, maybe even experiencing things in a certain way, but not aware of it as such. So um, the example he gave was: you come in, you're angry, stomping around. Um, somebody says, hey, what's your problem? And you say, what do you mean? I don't have a fucking problem. And then you realize, oh, wait, I, I guess I do. I've been angry for the last hour. Well, I just didn't that, realize How does that work with joy? Well, I, I mean, I said fun. I, I, joy is... <laughs> uh, okay, you know, how does it work with fun? I think it works maybe in the same way. Uh, you know, you're uh, giggling and running around and uh, with a giant smile on your face, and someone says... 
gee, you're enjoying yourself. You say, no, I'm not. I'm having a terrible time. And then uh, you realize, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, for the last half hour, I have been having a great time. I thought I was with my family having a Yeah, so suppose your peer group, your peer group are, are uh, the people that have always said terrible negative things about the music of Insane Clown Posse. Yeah. <laughs> Right. No, I, I buy it now. Yeah, I hadn't. I couldn't imagine it, but I think that's true. Yeah, and then when you finally hear it, you don't realize that's what you're listening to. And, and uh... <laughs> so I'm gonna, now. I have a new career path. I will become the world's greatest party planner. That no one has fun at his parties that they know of. <laughs> they have fun. They just don't know it. They're not. They have fun. fun. They just don't know it. That's gonna be my slogan. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess the Puritans. One of the raps on the Puritans is that. When they were burning witches, they were having fun, but they just didn't admit it. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. You're really enjoying this. So, Pete, have I converted you now that uh, whether a party is fun cannot be settled by polling or not? Well, uh, no, I'm not that easy. <laughs> so we, we need to figure out a way of, of polling their first-order mental states. <laughs> we can have them do button pressing while also testing their confidence judgments about how accurate those button presses are. Are you having fun, button one? No fun, button two. How confident are you about there that you assessment? <laughs> well done. <laughs> still, it seems to me that, that it's something that um, in some way or other, it, 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 it just is what people think. The, the I'm, I'm a fun realist, man. I'm a fun realist. So, you know, this is some places where I think the kind of, I don't know, uh, social ontology work might play a role. I mean, so I, 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 why can't certain things be the way they are but depend on uh, things that we do for their existence? So, the, I mean, if, if fun is a real part of the world, which I tend to think that it is or should be, it can be, uh, but nonetheless it doesn't exist. It's not like hydrogen. It's not... Um, at least in the way I view the world, not out there pre-us, but it's something that um, now exists when we engage in certain activities, whether we believe it or not. Why isn't that a Why isn't that a I mean, a good story about what fun is? A socially constructed category. Yeah. So, yes, but I'm so right. It 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 is. It just is. We're not saying it is not. It is. But what it what it is 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 built out of or constructed uh, by the mind or by our practices or by practices. But that's not still. But so what I'm trying to get at is whether you can solve whether the thing is fun by doing a poll. And I'm saying it's not obvious that you can. I still I still think you could do some kind of science to decide whether the fun is going on. Um, it would involve looking at brains, not polls. Brains. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yes, maybe hormone levels or Wait. something like that. But what I'm what I'm questioning is that you were saying here's a good case for saying what kinds of things can be answered by taking a poll. Here's one good candidate whether that's the party right. is fun. Yeah. So I'm I'm just trying to suggest that it's not obvious to me that that's really a good candidate. Huh. Well, if that's not I, a good candidate, when when you make this appeal to brains, you could still be right even if there's no there's no interesting thing that brains having fun have in common with each other. Right. If you just have a clear enough story about what are the kind of circumstances that would cause people to misreport their fun on polls. Exactly. Right? They have fun blindness. <laughs> yeah. Like if you had a clear sense of like, well look, if here's here's like the top ten reasons why people misdescribe 
They don't know English very well. Uh, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> It'd you know? be more like a, the case of dental fear, you know. Dental fear? You, uh, yes, this is a famous case that we like to talk about. Um, this is fear of dentists or fear of teeth? <laughs> it's a fear, dental fear is a weird phenomenon that happens in, in, at the dentist uh, where a person who's had an anesthesia to their um, face is having dental work done on their teeth and they'll report that they experience pain when they can't be experiencing pain or at least not pain sensations anyway because the nerves are deadened so that what one kind of plausible way of interpreting what's happening there is they have vibrations from the drilling and they're afraid because they're at the dentist and those two together cause them to misinterpret that as pain huh and why do you why why do you say that's a misinterpretation why don't you just say pain well, can be caused in other ways you I could say that. Matter. Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, you could say pain could be caused in other ways. Um, I, I guess yeah. So uh, the idea is supposed to be that since the nerves are deadened, it's not you're not getting as pain sensation through the typical pathways. So that does leave you open to the idea that maybe this or some kind of top-down effect or process going on. It's like if you're if you're numb, and something you care about is destroyed, that'll cause you pain. So. I don't know that your nerves need to be involved. Wait, wait, wait. What, what, what? So if you're, if I anesthetize your leg and then break your toe, that causes you... No, I'm saying, let's say you're numb and you've spent your whole life trying to um, create an art museum. And then I tell you, your art museum was just bombed. You'll yeah. feel pain. Yeah, but not the same kind of pain as, you know, stabbing you in the stomach. What do you mean not the same kind? I mean, being stabbed in the stomach and being stabbed in the arm are different kinds of pain. I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting that Tylenol seems to be effective not just against headaches, but also against the pain of rejection. <laughs> Did you read this study that came out recently? No. <laughs> that this social pain, like the pain of being finding out, you know, what party, that kind of pain. Hey, did yeah. you like the party? What party? <laughs> that pain is alleviated by Tylenol just the same as the pain in your toe is alleviated by Tylenol. Now, I, I know alcohol works this way. Oh, does it really? Yeah. Okay. So that, that would <laughs> suggest... Through its amnestic effects. Yeah, so that, that would suggest that maybe pain, like, I, I can't help but feel that pain is a general case of of things not going our way and like that can mean because your bone got broken or that can mean because the people you care about are suffering or things you care about are suffering right do you think there's a difference uh, changing the topic just slightly Eric is there a difference between thinking that the thing behind you is green and seeing that it's green oh I don't know or, or believe it like you know you might believe don't uh, don't turn around or uh, <laughs> I can believe. actually see it in my in my little mirror. My what do you call this? There's a picture in picture. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That kind he's of cheating. He's cheating. <laughs> but I think you could follow it anyway. You know, you might think that there's a difference between having a, a sensory visual experience of something being green and um, coming coming to believe by other means that it's green. Maybe you've got a, a machine that makes a that makes a, a, a high pitched noise whenever the camera is pointed at green things, and with your eyes yeah. closed, you can come to believe that there's a green thing in front of you, or you you just take my word for it. You know, I wouldn't lie to you. There's a green thing right there. Right. And and so in, in those cases, we draw a distinction between a sensation and uh, a belief, and maybe a similar sort of thing 
applies in the case of pain. There's a there's a pain sensation that you get when you have an ankle broken, but there's a different kind of thing of that which is judging that something you care about has been destroyed. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, the green thing, that sounds like you're onto something. But the pain thing sounds kind of weird because, like, if if I'm trying to prove how cool I am by having a tattoo in front of my friends and the needle is going into my skin and I feel great and I'm like, this is so exciting, it seems wrong to say it feels the same way as it does when I, I'm terrified of the needle and it's so horribly painful. Yeah. That, yeah. Seems, that seems like a mistake. Yeah. Well, yeah. So why why can't you say that in each case you have the both pain sensations that you're aware of in different ways? Uh, so I mean, obviously the stimuli is the same in some sense, um, but there's uh, some other. But I thought Eric is denying that you have the same. I guess I don't think you have the pain sensations in both cases. That seems like a kind of a occult. Quality. Well, what do you mean by pain sensation? Because I what I mean is that certain nerves fire. Maybe C fibers, which are these old school things that people used to talk about, and maybe right. D, D, well, D fibers and delta fibers. Well, and there's like in, a singular insulin, uh, yeah. you know. Everything I've heard about brain science from kind of a, a reputable source makes me think that they're, it's all quite individualistic and it's quite holistic. And uh -huh. the idea, and I think people kind of make philosophical mistakes and they read them into brain science. Uh huh. And I'm pretty skeptical of that because I... So wait, I, what, what philosophical mistake was I just making? Well, like, you're looking for the thing, the, the light that goes on when you feel pain. No, I said that there was a, a sensation produced by a stimulus. There's no light. I didn't say anything about, about a light. Fibers that fire whenever you have pain. Yeah, there's no lights there. That's just firing a fiber. Well, why do you think... But why think there's a sensation? You're looking at a sensation when you're looking at something in a brain scan. Like, there's all kinds of shit going on in the brain. No right. question. And sometimes I'm in pain and sometimes I'm not. And, and what I'm in, when I'm in pain and when I'm not has to do with a lot of other things. What I care about, what I'm paying attention to, right. uh, what's important to me. Maybe that's the same as what I care about. And how healthy I am, how annoyed I am, all these kind of things. Yeah. And You're talking about your conscious experience, though. I'm talking about something else. Just this. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the stimulus producing a certain activity reliably and repeatedly underneath all that stuff you're talking about. Which I, I don't know why we believe in that, or if I do believe in that. Is is there evidence that whenever I mean, surely I mean, surely it's true that there's such a thing as getting a pin in my finger. That's that's real. We can observe that. Yeah. And sometimes when people get pins in their figure finger, they say I'm in pain, and sometimes they don't. Yeah. You're saying that whenever I get the pin in the, my finger, there's a natural kind of brain events that goes with that? Yeah. Is that true? Uh, well... If it's true, if it's true, it's true. Well, it depends. I mean, a lot of what we know about the brain is theoretical, so we can't, I mean, we can't say, but we, what I would say is that, yes, we've studied in rats very extensively pain circuitry, in humans as well to a lesser extent, obviously, but in rats at least, this is pretty, pretty much known what kind of uh, neural circuitry is, I mean, we don't know exactly what it's doing, obviously, and I'm not trying to make such strong claims, but uh, so there's there's two questions here. One is, like, can you describe reliably from the pinprick to the brain activity what's going on? And the answer is, on all, in all honesty, is not really, because, you know, brain science is not mature at this point. 
but uh, can we look at that and try to make some generalizations about what's going on? I think, I think yes. And one thing that seems reasonable to say is that what's going on is that this creature, the animal in question, becomes uh, um, uh, behaviorally aware of these kinds of noxious stimuli. And so you might posit something like an internal representation, um, a sensation, which somehow is produced in the good cases by this kind of um, stimuli. And so by, stimu by, by stimulus and then the sensation, what I mean is just that. And then you can be aware of that. That may cause, you know, you may associate that, and then you do psychology, and, and a bunch of stuff happens. But uh, this is, you know, you have to start giving a theory at some point. And by now, we've entered into the territory of theory, and the theory posits such things as representations, sensations, and perceptions, and so forth. Right. Um, I, don't, so I, mean, I understand that people disagree that. with that, but, you know, that's not super controversial, is it? It is to me. I mean, because I, here's what it sounds to me that you're saying is that if the rat in a harness is given a pin in its neck and if the rat in its love play with its rat lover is given a bite on the neck, that there must be a relevant similarity between those two brain events. And I just don't see why I have to believe that. It might be true. That uh, in other words, it well, sounds like well, hold on. so. Look, there's obviously going to be a difference between like all of the further connections. So picking, pricking it with a pin, and having a rat lover nibble on your rat neck. Obviously, uh, one is part of a mating ritual, a mating ritual, and the other is part of you know torturing the rat for in the name of science. Obviously, so it's okay, but or allegedly, but uh, so there, these things are they're different events. But, well, but in some sense, they share a, a, a similar core. The similar core that is different. I mean, it might be true. I, have you ever looked? I mean, at look. But hold on. Listen, come on. Be serious for a second. Let me. Let me just hold on. Hold on. So suppose that you want to know how how you see things, and um, so you do some science on on the eye. You find out that there are receptive fields, and you have on center and off center receptive fields, and you say, okay, you shine a light here, and this neuron fires, and you shine the light over here, and the neuron doesn't fire, and you shine that light here, it fires really strongly. You shine it over this area, it fires kind of weakly. And so you map out the receptive field area of the thing here. And so you start saying, aha, when there's a stimulus over there, um, it produces a sensation, a representation, which is built up, maybe from edge detectors and so forth. And then you come along and say, oh, yeah, but looking at Picasso is so much different than looking at a sunset, which is different from looking at a rectangle. But, but those are not, I mean, we're not talking about the same thing. You're talking about the emotional experience of seeing art and, I'm talking about the way the brain starts from a 2D image projected onto the retina and then builds up a, um, a representation of the environment. They're, they're, and then, of course, all that other stuff follows. I'm not denying that it's there. but Well, it might be true. I mean, it's obviously a story that has a lot of uh, philosophical tradition behind it. But, but a lot of it's scientific have... evidence as well. I mean, you know. But, but we, we, we should take our uh, break, gentlemen. Break.
So, and uh, are you guys good for uh, one more half hour? I am. I, I thought we were going to talk about Santa. Yeah, <laughs> we've been talking about Santa the whole time. Oh yeah, right. We just didn't know it. <laughs> just because you're not conscious of Santa doesn't mean he isn't there right, guiding right. all of your actions. <laughs> so yeah, all all I was thinking about was the the work of uh, Walter Freeman on yeah. smell in rabbits. And it seemed that when he looked at the pattern of activation of a rabbit smelling a particular smell, it was, number one, global, and number two, quite individualistic based upon the particular rabbit. And also, seemed to, it, seemed, it seemed that the brain activations were similar to each other, or patterns of activation were similar to each other the way... Um, if I sign my name a hundred times in a row, those signatures are similar to one another. So, I mean, he might be wrong, he might be right. I mean, but I at least don't want to have our philosophy determine how we interpret these results. In other words, it's not necessarily the case that the brain works by manipulating representations. It's not necessarily the case that it doesn't either, though. I mean, so it might no. be a philosophical mistake to assume it doesn't. I mean. That's true. So uh, it, what, we, what we're doing is building theories, and I agree that, you know, I wasn't saying that this is the truth, but I'm saying there's a good case to be made for this, um, that it's a way of approaching this stuff, and then if you set it up that way, you would have a story about the pain sensation and how that was different from all the other stuff that it was connected to. Um, but I certainly wouldn't want to say that this is, like, known or something. I wasn't saying okay. that, but uh, okay. I, I just think that, the, that there's a lot of good evidence for this, but then, you know... Um, what you, I mean, I think that generally the way you proceed in the philosophy of science in this way is you want to look at the, the, the largest possible swath of data from, psycholo from psychology and neuroscience, and you want to tell a coherent story about how all of that stuff fits together. This is roughly like the kind of stuff that Ned Block has been saying in his mesh argument type stuff. I think that's the, uh, a generally fruitful way to approach these things. You never get a knockdown argument. What you get is kind of, you know, how do we make sense of all this data that we have? And so I disagree, I guess, with, with what you were just saying, that um, we want a bottom-up approach and we don't want to bring theory into it because I think that without theory, it's just a bunch of buzzing. We don't know what's going on. Um, so that to even make sense of uh, what this brain activity is even doing, you have to already have a theory that there's perception involved, that you're somehow informationally sensitive to stuff or to approach it in a different way so that there's no escaping theory at every level I would say. And, but there's no escaping polling people in a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's going to be constrained about... You have to poll neurons. Mm -hmm. I mean I don't, I don't think anything is going to, is going to be an immovable foundation but I, I think a really big important part of the story is going to be what we would say in these situations about whether we were feeling pain, or whether we were having fun. Well, if you mean that, if in psychological science we were, uh, rely on reports of subjects a lot, then I guess so. But did you mean more than that? Well, I mean, we got on this talking about like what what you could and couldn't settle by by polling. Right. And Can we settle whether we've settled that by polling? Let's take a poll. Uh. <laughs> I say we've settled it. <laughs> You're, but you're the crazy guy with the clowns. 
<laughs> I'm the crazy guy with the glass. Just to, yeah, remember how the analogy works. With the super fun parties that aren't that no one believes are fun. That's right. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's funny. Like, if you're polling people who are unfamiliar with other possibilities, they may misreport how happy they are. Right. I mean, if if all they know is prison, and they very often they get no water, and today they got some water, they might say that they're happy, and right. they could all be wrong because they're not familiar with all the other things you can do because they've grown up their whole lives in prison. So polling those prisoners as to whether they had a good day or not will fail. <laughs> right. right? And this is a point that Mill makes, actually, when he talks about, because Mill, is, I think, is the kind of father of this, let's poll everyone on these kinds of things, because when he's talking about, you know, his famous line about uh, the sensual pleasures being inferior to the intellectual pleasures, and basically what he says is, how do we know that? Well, you have to ask everyone who's had both and who's thought about it. And so what that means is you pull the philosophers. <laughs> the yeah, philosophers say well, the intellectual pleasures are better. Um, but, of course, they don't, and Mill's very careful. He says it only works if you find people who have literally had both. So if you only had someone who has only the intellectual but no sensual, then their opinion is not going to be very good and vice versa. So. so instead of just polling the prisoners, you expand the polling base. But... But you don't go be, I mean, there's a sense in which you're not like, it's not like hydrogen. There's not some reality beyond the, the, the human like if, that settles this. If, the, if there's a million prisoners and there's one guy who got out and he, he loves his life much more than those guys love their life, but they don't know it, that could be, right? I mean... Yeah. And then the poll would give you the wrong answer, that the funnest day is the day that your, your, your warden gives you water. And this is the whole really human true. race. There's a, the whole, the whole, the, and this is the whole human race. Most, yeah. most of them are in the cave, and one of them escaped from the cave. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then let's say he dies. They're still wrong. He just happened to have died. <laughs> huh. Well... Yeah, <laughs> I do like that example. But uh, Pete, do you think this extends the language at all? Like yeah. uh, yellow cake uranium, to use a favorite example. Um, suppose that we have a convention of all the nuclear experts in the world who understand what yellow cake uranium is, and suppose that convention is destroyed. So we can't go around and ask any relevant expert what yellow cake uranium is, so now... Um, we're not able to think about it or refer to it, or, or do are our thoughts able to connect to it without appealing to relevant experts in this case? Or what do you say about this? Uh, I don't this is a famous argument from Kripke, by the way, against uh, some, some views on language. So in the case, of, I think we have this larger theory of how the world works, whereby it totally makes sense for there to be yellow cake uranium independently of anyone existing to talk about it. But in the case of... But this is not a case about it existing, but a case about you thinking about it or referring to it. Like you just said, yellow cake uranium. And suppose I said, well, what is that? What are you thinking about when you think about yellow cake uranium? And suppose you're unable to say, and normally you would ask a scientist, what the fuck is yellow cake uranium? But they've all been blown up at my convention. So do you know what your thought is about? That was what my question was. No. You say no, you don't know, because the experts... So, are you thinking about yellow cake uranium? Wait, I. Th uh, 
I, yeah, I don't think there's any facts of the matter about that. You don't? No. Okay. Why uh, not? I'm not sure I'm, I'm completely following the example. I wanted to focus on stuff like whether there is yellow keg uranium. Okay, well, I was talking about the polling aspect. So some people might say that your use of the word yellow cake uranium in order to be meaningful uh, in your thoughts, when you say, you know, yellow, you think to yourself, yellow to cake uranium. Kind of real relation to yellow cake uranium. Well, some people might say that that's because you have a real relation to yellow cake uranium and your thought is about it because of this relation. Other people, like maybe former instances of some people whose name rhymes with Hillary Putnam, um, might say things like, no, you have to have some experts around to understand what yellow cake uranium is, and you could ask them what it is. So, so you socialized kind of just, description theory versus... Well, we're getting at this, yeah, the issue was polling, so you know, some people think that you have to poll the scientists, in effect, to find out what you were thinking about, um, or what the, your word refers to or means. Um, but if all those people died suddenly, so couldn't be polled, then I still, I have the very strong intuition that nonetheless you would still have the same thought, it would still be about the same stuff. You might lack but, knowledge about yellow cake uranium, but you have a relation to it. And so your use of it or thought about it doesn't depend on somebody knowing what yellow cake uranium is or being able to explain it or give a theory of how it works. I think there's a lot of things being smushed together here. One of them is a, a descriptive theory versus like a, a pure million uh, r relational theory. Don't you have to believe a what, whole... What? That's not smushed. Those are two different theories. Yeah, yeah, but like, well, who, who gives a shit about other people? Like, what, what if, you know, so focus on um, uh, the, the, the case of the woman who, who thinks uh, uh, some, McKinley's been assassinated even though he's um, still alive. So she doesn't she doesn't have any of the standard beliefs about assassination, right? Uh, but does her concept of assassination still refer to assassination? Of course it does. Well, I wouldn't say of course. Yes, but I just did. <laughs> All right. So you're Richard. You're talking to someone who who thinks that um, shaking hands with someone when when she sees someone shake hands with McKinley, she says, "Oh, he's been assassinated." Right. And you think that her her use of the when she makes the sound assassination, it still means assassination, even though she'll all she also believes. Can you still go to work after you've been assassinated? Yes. Do yeah, good she has a bunch of false beliefs about assassination. Yes. She has a bunch of false beliefs about assassination. I mean, it really depends on how she acquired the concepts or the relevant beliefs. So, uh, if if she acquired it through, you know, um, being a part of our language and hearing the word assassin used in the way that it's normally used, um, and then she just misapplies it for whatever reason you can tell, then yes, her concept is the normal one. She just doesn't know what it is. So hmm. concepts are atomistic, and they have their meanings by bearing relations to things. Some of them do. I would say, you know, like, uh, bachelor is not like that. Um, pencil probably is not like that. Uh, but lots of things are, and they, they probably map very nicely up to things that we call natural kinds or something well, like that. Well, an interesting difference between the, the non-standard user of assassination and the standard one is that she cannot do a very good job handing it on to anybody else. Right. 
Well, uh, seems, however, whatever you want to call that, that seems pretty important, <laughs> you know, that if she starts to teach English to some other people, they're going to get a very mixed up sense of what assassination is very quickly. While if the if we do, who know the real use of meaning of assassination, we can have a conversation with them, and they can say, "Hey, is assassination a kind of killing?" And we can say, "Yeah," and they say, "Well, we only have a hundred words, and we use killing." And you can say, "Fine," and we can have these kind of rational exchanges and pass on the practice while she can. Right. So I, you, uh, there's an interesting question about whether she can relevant. pass it on or not. I mean, if you have a very a very weak a very weak criteria for reference borrowing or for this kind of relationship, which is what we're talking about. Um, how is it that you're able? I think that you know, hearing a person use a word is all that you really need to acquire the uh, concept, which refers to whatever the thing it traces back to. Traces back to whether you know it or not. You can misuse it and do all kinds of weird things. I mean, you know, you can get a twenty-dollar bill. And uh, make a paper airplane out of it, and you're not using the $20 bill in the right way. But the $20 bill is still embedded in a causal network. It still has the same properties. It's still, whether, I mean, whether you're aware of it or not, you have weird beliefs about $20 bills. I mean, it's still a $20 bill. So but, in some sense, uh, some, something similar is what I'd say about this case. But to, but to go meta a bit here, and also to bring it back to experimental philosophy, in, in these these debates that are specifically about reference and meaning and philosophy of language, what is there to say either for or against them uh, besides what, what various people find intuitive? Various people have certain intuitions about meaning, like the uses of the word meaning and certain intuitions about uses of the word reference. Is there, any, is there anything besides these intuitions that we could appeal to to adjudicate between these competing philosophical theories? I mean, first of all, there's an issue about whether why it's wrong to use intuitions in this case because some people might argue. I, I don't know if I endorse this view, but some people, like Stephen Neal, possibly might argue that the primary data of linguistics is intuitions about which things are grammatical and which things are not grammatical. Well, that's my question. Is that the primary data? I, well, or some people might say that. Is that the only data? That I, why do you think that your meta question is going to be any easier to solve than the basic question? It sounds to me like it would probably be harder to solve. Uh, it would be harder to... The only way to figure out how to do it is to do it. And if you say, well, but how are we going to do it? <laughs> I mean... The, well, the, I think it might the be easier. The data for philosophy of languages, if it fits in with everything else we think about the world in a coherent and appealing way, isn't it? But if, if, if somebody had something besides intuitions to appeal to, it would be easy for them to, to appeal to it. They would say, like, well, look, we, we have these readings from the Large Hadron Collider... <laughs> we can appeal to those. They should appeal to everything that they know about everything. I mean, that's why it's philosophy, isn't it? Well, it might be philosophy because no one else gives a shit. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things no one else gives a shit about that aren't philosophy. Oh, I mean, no one else <laughs> self-described uh, philosophers. That's <laughs> so, no one else is. I don't know. So some some people think that there are more than intuitions here. Michael Devitt's a famous example of this. Um, whether he's ultimately right about that. Yeah, Michael Devitt, you may have heard of him. He's a philosopher type. Um, but he, he's someone who thinks that, well, if you want to explain the way that clauses work and the way that we normally attribute... The way what works? That clauses. Oh, back like clauses. That, like that, so and such and such is the case. Which we use to what... I mean, the primary use of that clauses, you might argue, is to attribute beliefs or other intentional states to persons. 
And so if you wanted to give a theory about how this stuff would work, you might want to start with saying, well, what does it mean to believe that such and such is the case? And so then you might say, ah, oh, well, it's important to have relations to the world so that you can guide behavior. And you can start a whole story, uh, which is not going to be a knockdown argument. And who cares about knockdown arguments? Then intuitions may come in or may not come in. But what we want to do is explain or give a theory or account of um, something which we do, which is think about the world and, get, and move around in it. And so... Um, I, I mean, I guess, I guess I would say that there is more data that goes beyond the intuitions. But even so, I think intuitions shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. I think that they sharpen questions and can guide further questions. I don't think that they count um, as like defeating evidence. You know, I'm not like a Kripkean about that. Kripke once famously said he was. He said, "I don't know what's the quote." He said, "I don't know what would be, what could be stronger evidence for a claim other than that I find it intuitive." <laughs> So some people have that kind of view about intuitions. I, I wouldn't be that strong about it, but um, I think they play a role. But then there's also these other kind of, like we want to explain something, give an account of it. It's called thinking and how thinking relates to behavior in the world. And once you start doing that, that kind of relationship to the world, whether descriptive relationships are enough, I don't think that they are. I think you need some kind of actual connection um, that goes beyond description. But I think descriptions play an important role. So I have a, a mixed theory. I think, yeah, some of it's causal connections and, and some of it's um, inferential connections between stuff, but uh, I don't think you get it you can either way, all the way, but I think each is an important part of, the, of explaining how we think about stuff, which is an important question. How do you know it's important? How do I know that thinking about uh, how, ex explaining how we think is an important question? <laughs> is this because we took a poll? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I mean, I don't know what's important. That, that's an interesting question, I guess, but it's something I think that we want to know about how we end up, we manage thinking. I mean, it's been one of the questions in one sense or another. You could trace it back to Parmenides, um, and there's one way of reading the poem, uh, which is about intentionality and about how thought connects to the world. It's, an, it's, a, it's an, I believe, a, per, a historically perennial question, and so maybe some of its importance is merely related to that. But uh, the only reason I brought this up was because we were talking about which questions could be settled by polls, and some people think it's kind of mean questions can be, and so I was just kind of well, I mean, but, that. But, but where I was going to go with this was that if, if, if something had nothing going for it besides intuitions, then that would be something that it would, you would want to poll people on their intuitions. Right, but maybe there's more to it than intuitions. For example? For example, I just said, explaining how, how we manage to think about the world. No, but what's the data? <laughs> The data is that we think about stuff and move around in the world. That's the data. We want to explain that. I say um, Pete believes that Superman isn't Clark Kent. That's so. There's a that clause which attributes to you a psychological state, which we say explains the way data, that you behave. But what data could you provide that would that would tell me whether you know that woman is thinking about assassination or not? So the woman, the woman who says things like, "Yeah, he's still alive." Yeah, you could be assassinated but with just a... Well, I, I just told you, Pete, it would follow from our best explanation of what we call thinking in good cases, and that's a bad case. So maybe, we, you know, the quote, the famous line, bad case makes, hard cases make bad law. So I don't want to build my whole account of meaning and thought on one random weirdo who thinks about assassination in the wrong way. I want to explain it what goes right in the good cases, and then if in the weird cases you have this counterintuitive claim about what assassination means in her mouth, then like you said, who cares about intuitions? We're trying to be, you know, do science. So I say 
it's it's a it's just like I was talking about earlier. What we want are theories overall compared against each other. What are the costs? What are the benefits? And then you know we uh, settle for the one that explains the most um, with the least assumptions, etc. And then look at what happens in these other weird cases. And so I think that uh, that goes well beyond intuition. So Eric, one thing that comes out in your Santa book is uh, you're pretty hostile towards correspondence theory of truth, and I would think that these kinds of um, causal theories of reference that, that often, I guess, you know, for a lot of people, they get tied to correspondence theory of truth. Yeah. Are, are you similarly hostile to, like, Kripkean, Putnam, causal, or direct reference theories? Yes. <laughs> I don't think that this story of the woman who believes assassination because of a causal relationship between that individual word and an individual instance of assassination is very um, illuminating. Um, and I think you'd have to look at a, a whole other range. Well, what's it supposed practice. to illuminate? What's it supposed to illuminate? Yeah. How, how language works, how our minds work, how we are able to... But, but it's not illuminating in the bad case, it's illuminating in the good case. So that's a bad case, and you can still explain what's happening there, but... Uh, I don't know what what illumination will we want from a, a case where a person is using a weird in a weird way, even though she's part of a, a normal language community. I'm not. I'm trying to understand that case, and it seems like it's it it tells against the direct theory of reference if it gives us a wrong answer in that case. Now you can say, well, why is that a wrong? Well, answer? what's the wrong? Yeah, what's the why is what's okay. the wrong answer? You know, I, I do I do owe you a story about why that's a wrong answer is that it seems to say that she could travel somewhere, teach a bunch of people English, they could all use assassination in her way, and it would still mean something different. Well, no, because at some point the, the, it changes. So, well, how does it change? Know, well, it's a, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, it probably it's very hard to, to nail down. But, you know, this is like Hartree Field had this uh, nice paper way back in the old days about Madagascar and how that's the reference of Madagascar actually switched over time. And so maybe there were in-between states where people's beliefs about Madagascar were indeterminate and kind of sort of referring to both. Or, and, you know, I don't see what the big deal about those kinds of cases is. Yes, there may be indeterminate. I mean, the world's a fuzzy place. I don't think that – I think it's a caricature of the causal theory to say there's a direct – there's an obvious answer in every case what that term refers to. No, in some cases there aren't, and, and if this assassination woman moves to Iceland and starts teaching assassination in the way that she uses it, well then eventually people will begin to use the word intending to use it the way she taught it to them. And so the causal chain in their mouth will ground out to her. And so the word over in Iceland starts to have a different reference. It's, I don't really think that that's that traumatic of a, an outcome. I think it's a perfectly natural story to tell. And I think that usually people kind of try to you, you draw straw men of causal theories well, um, and I, not make use of these resources. I guess I'm wondering what, what it's accomplishing. I mean, everybody will agree that we're in the world. And that part of the way that we can think is that we're in a world. But to go from that and say our language is made of these little bits and each of the bits is caused by another bit of the world... I think, you know, gets you in hot water. And one well, of the partially made of, out of little bits. What? Why not say partially made out of little bits? There's a subcomponent of it, which is. 
What do you mean? What I mean is that you don't have to say that ev all of language is this way because obviously in this most obvious case, logical connectives like or and 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 stuff, those you know you can tell a different story about. And then in less obvious cases, like I said, bachelor and other maybe analytic terms, you can tell the same kind of story about. And so it's not as though everything in there is like this, but there maybe is some component of it, maybe restricted to nouns, maybe names or natural. I mean, so maybe some class of terms, um, not all of them, that have these kinds of connections. Uh, there be de maybe demonstratives, you know, so you could build up a subset of language that works this way. So it's not saying all language works this way. So what's wrong with having a subset of it work this well, way? Well, let's just take the example of a noun. Unless a person has a whole bunch of other beliefs about what's true of that noun, it, it doesn't seem to me to clarify anything to say that their word refers to what we refer to by that noun. It just, it just, seems, it just seems a confusing way, an unnecessarily confusing way of talking. What's, why is it con who's confused by it? Well, I'm confused by it. If, if you <laughs> say, hey, she, she thinks that assassination is good, and I'm like, really? I should put her in jail? No. Assassination refers to assassination in her were in her mind. She just has a lot of strange beliefs about it. That that seems to me a confusing way of talking. That's going to cause us to to treat her incorrectly and describe her incorrectly. Well, why would we be describing her incorrectly? That's exactly what's happening. And as described, she's. I mean, no. She mean it, it seems just. If we want to make sure we don't put this lady in jail, we should say what she she means something different from what we mean by assassination. No, she means something different when she utters the word assassination, but the con the word itself has the same meaning. She may mean something different when she utters the word. I mean, so yes, you're right. There is something different about her use of the word. Just like if I make a paper airplane out of a $20 bill, my use of that is very different then what a $20 bill is designed, structured, and intended to be used for. But you're not telling a confusing story or, oh my gosh, you know. Uh, no, you have something. The thing is built a certain way um, because of its causal history. It's structured to do a certain job. You're using it to do some other job. It's perfectly understandable why that might happen. We can tell a coherent story about it. Nothing is confusing. We don't have to treat her in any horrific way. We simply say, she's confused. Teach her the right meaning of the word. But I think you're you're going against the party line. I think that the I thought the party that you're on is, is supposed to say she means the same thing that we mean. No. Look. Okay. So look, there are three different things here. So direct. I'm, nobody here is a direct re reference theorist. I'm I'm certainly not that. So there's the causal relation. There's the sense relation, which is a meaning kind of relation. And if you want to be a real hardcore causal theorist, you can say that that sense boils down to a simply a kind of causal chain. That would be a kind of Michael Devitt story. I, I wouldn't, I, you know, whatever. It doesn't seem absurd to me to say that, but it's, pretty, it's a pretty austere view to say that uh, senses really boil down to um, different causal chains in the environment so that one way to describe this would be that the assassin woman has a different sense to her concept assassin because it has this weird deviant causal chain, whereas the reference is still the same. So, I mean, uh, that kind of story, I think, can make sense. So you don't have to be a direct reference theory. But then on, on top of that, in addition to uh, distinctions between what the concept refers to and what the sense of the concept is, if you want to have those, you can also have what the person themselves intends to communicate or mean by uttering that sentence. You could build Gricean machinery on top of this. 
And so you could say, look, what the word refers to um, is not what the person is using the word to express her thoughts. She intends a different thought to be expressed, but she's expressing it poorly. She's like trying to swing a baseball bat, but she's banging it on the ground. She's meaning to do something that she can't do with the tool she has. I mean, you can perfect. It, it makes it. it it's but a complicated. She can do it with the tool she has. All we, need to do is, we she can do it. All we need to do is know a little bit about how she uses the word, and she can perfectly well use it with the tool she has. Do it with the tool she has. That's right. Um, but we have to know how she uses the word. But you know, um, what I was talking about is how the word is connected to the community of people that use it. So there's two different things, the way she uses it and the way the word that came to her is used typically in the community. But, I mean, what, if, you, if you understand how everybody individually uses the word, why do we need to appeal to how it's typically used? What, 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 what job is that doing? What work is that doing in the story? Well, I was, it's standing a surrogate in for like the, t the regular normal causal chain that connects assassination, the concept, to a certain kind of activity, and the deviant causal chain, which results in this woman, however it happens, having strange beliefs about assassination. What I would wonder is what you need the causal chains for if you, if you know all the uses. If we know all the uses, what else is there? What else do we need to know about? Why would we need to know about these connections to the, the things outside of the, the system of uses? So that we can ascribe truth values to thoughts. And that we can say that she's having a, a thought that's false, even though she's intending to express something that's true. But, but truth, values in a, truth values against the backdrop of a correspondence theory of truth. If you've got some other theory of truth, then you don't need to go in that direction. What other theory of truth are we talking about? I mean, we're talking about truth. There's only one. There's only, truth is truth. I mean, you could say a bunch of bullshit, but that's bullshit. <laughs> You're the one that brought uh, about an hour or so ago. Yeah, truth is correspondence. There's no other theory of truth. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, what true means is correspondence to reality. You could monkey with it and deny that, but, you know, I don't see that working out. <laughs> Well, well, I, I have to I have to bring this conversation to an end from my my stand from my participation in it. But you can continue to talk. Don't let me stop it. Well, we should all go to bed, actually. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, nice to meet you. Uh, very nice talking to you. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us. You bet. Yeah. Nice meeting you. Nice to meet you too. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. You too. Bye bye.